1: There are five words that should never, and I mean never, they should never come out of your mouth to your fiancé or to your spouse. Give me your engagement ring. Now, you can say those words if you want to get some consternation, if you want to get a look of consternation, if you want to see daggers come out of the eyes of the other person and come at you. If you want to lighten it up a little bit, make it a little special, add a sixth word to that. Use the word please. Please give me your engagement ring. It doesn't make any difference. You use those five or six words, you're going to get a look that could kill. And it might permanently scar you emotionally. You might end up needing counseling. Just don't use those five or six words. Give me your engagement ring. Now, I know that because earlier today, I asked my wife, Janet, for the ring that I gave her for her engagement ring. And here it is in my hand. Now, my wife is gracious She humbly gave it to me because she knew that I was going to use this. I wanted to show it to you, and I wanted to make an illustration. But here it is. Maybe you can zoom in on this no matter how different an engagement ring is, every engagement ring has the same components. It has a band of some type of a precious or a semi-precious metal, sometimes it's gold, white gold, yellow gold, platinum or titanium or something like that, and then it has a setting, and then inside that setting is the precious or semi-precious stone, a rock. In this particular case, it's a diamond, and uh, right there it is, you can see it for yourself, and that's what we typically see in every engagement ring has the same component. The purpose of an engagement ring is to draw attention to the stone inside. Now, I better not lose this thing because if I lose my wife's engagement ring, you'll be looking for a new pastor, I can guarantee that. Or at least you'll come visit me in the hospital. But the purpose of every single engagement ring is to draw attention to the diamond. That's the whole point. It's not about, oh, look at that amazing band. It's not about, oh, look at that amazing setting. It's all about those things pointing our attention to the diamond, the gem that that ring exists for. And, you know, it's the same way when it comes to a passage of the Bible. Every single passage in the Bible is there, for a particular reason, it has its gem, it has its diamond, it has its main teaching. And that teaching is supposed to be something upon which we build our lives. Just like in Luke chapter 19 beginning in verse 28. Look at Luke chapter 19 beginning in verse 28. Here's a passage of scripture that has a diamond in it, a gem a teaching where the writer of Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit intentionally wrote these things down because he wanted the people in his day and he wants the people of all time, no matter what day in which they live, to build their lives, to build our lives upon this gem, this teaching in the Word of God. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had said what things? This is in the context of Jesus talking to that tiny toll taker, Zacchaeus. The tax collector, the chief tax collector who was following Jesus, even though there was a crowd that looked like they were following Jesus, it was only Zacchaeus who was really among the disciples, apart from the crowd, it was Zacchaeus that was really following Jesus. And Jesus told him, I'm going to stay at your house, and we know the rest of the story if we've been here. If you haven't been here, you need to go back and listen to that podcast, listen to that message. And then Jesus followed up that interaction with Zacchaeus by giving the the parable of the 10 miners. He gave 10 people, each one of them, three months wages. And some of them come back with a good return of investment, and some of them come back with a very poor return on their investment. So while he was saying these things, Jesus ends up continuing his track to go up to Jerusalem. Did you see that in verse 28? When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. We never say down to Jerusalem. We never say over to Jerusalem. We always say up to Jerusalem because that's the city of God in particular where God's culminating work takes place, the temple, the representation of his glory and his honor being there in Jerusalem. And you see that again and again in the scriptures, whenever somebody goes to Jerusalem, they go up to Jerusalem because it's a term of endearment, a term of reverence. And as he was saying these things, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount that is called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Look at the intentionality here saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt, that's a young donkey, a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, "'Why are you untying the colt?' Notice the repetition that's happening here. The colt, the colt, the colt. And they said, "'The Lord has need of it.' And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, as he was drawing near already." Your disciples, and Jesus answered, thank you for that potent reminder. I will do that immediately. No, we don't see Jesus doing that at all. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If the disciples weren't going to give praise and glory and honor to Jesus, the very stones would cry out, giving praise and glory to Jesus. This is a passage of scripture that has a main point, a gem, a diamond, To help us understand not only that Jesus was a good teacher, not only was he an amazing worker of miracles, but there was something about Jesus because of who Jesus was. And I would go so far as to say because of who Jesus is. That set him apart from just being a rabbi, a teacher. That set him apart from just being a miracle worker. The point of this passage, the diamond in this passage, the gem about which all of this passage points is an intentional, deliberate revelation from Almighty God through Luke about the identity of Jesus Christ. What we see Jesus doing in this passage of Scripture is what we've seen him do again and again in Luke's Gospel. We see him doing it in every single one of the Gospels. In fact, we see God doing it through the canon of Scripture, through the record of Scripture, all 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. There is an intentionality behind every single writer To point the reader and to point the listener, to point people like you and me, here we are 2,000 years after the fact, to the same conclusion about the same person and his name, humanly speaking, is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you see in this particular passage of Scripture, we've seen colt, 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 colt. We've used that word used again and again, a young donkey. And we'll get to the significance of that in a moment. We've seen the disciples. We see the disciples through this passage of Scripture making an amazing proclamation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's quote, unquote. And we'll see the significance of that as well. But first and foremost, I want you to understand, I want you to see, because this becomes incredibly important. Whose idea is it to go riding in on a young donkey? Whose idea is it? It's Jesus' idea. Jesus instructs them, hey, I want two of you to go ahead. And when you go ahead, you're going to find a young donkey that nobody has ever sat upon. Bring that young donkey to me. Now that is incredibly important because it's Jesus' idea. Jesus is taking the initiative, and I want to know how could Jesus, if he was just a mere mortal, have clairvoyant capability to know that in the village where he was sending these two disciples there would be a young cult upon whom nobody had ever ridden and that the owner of that young cult would recognize, hey, wait a second here. That belongs to me. You're not supposed to steal and rob. Who's telling you to do this? And you just need to be prepared and say, oh, the Lord wants it. See, the idea of no matter what you're in charge of, no matter what I'm in charge of, there's somebody over you. There's somebody over you over me. There is a Lord over your lordship. Jesus knew that this set of circumstances was going to happen because Jesus is the one who sets it all in motion. Jesus didn't have to do this. And keep in mind that because Jesus set two of the disciples in motion to take these specific steps, all of the other specific things are a consequence of what Jesus instructed them to do. And here again, in this passage of scripture, we see two groups of individuals, the disciples and the anti-disciples, the Pharisees. And somebody makes a decision here. There are some who make the right decision and some who make a wrong decision. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. Just because time has passed, nothing has changed. The truth is that you too are one of these people. Every single person on the planet is one of these two kinds of people. You're either ecstatic and exuberant and elated and emotional in a good way because you recognize who Jesus is or you're ecstatic and emotional and agitated and angry because you hear what those of us who are excited about Jesus are saying and doing and it gets under your skin. These guys have a serious case of epidermis penetratus, the Pharisees. Jesus has once again gotten underneath their skin. Do you understand? They recognize what Jesus is saying. Look at this. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Do something about this. Rabbi, translated as teacher. You've got disciples. Every rabbi had disciples, had followers, people into whom that rabbi, that teacher was investing and teaching them what? From the Old Testament in this particular case. And so the Pharisees recognize that Jesus is allowing a particular kind of behavior to go on. It's a behavior that they don't want to take part of. It's a behavior that they find reprehensible. They will have nothing to do with what the disciples were doing. And they want Jesus if he is a good moral teacher. Some people believe that Jesus is just a good moral teacher. You cannot only come to that conclusion about Jesus, because if you believe that Jesus was only a good moral teacher, then a good moral teacher would not have allowed the people to do what they were doing at that very moment. Remember, it was Jesus' idea to send two of them to get a young donkey, a colt. All this emphasis is placed on these verses around their deliberate going on this journey at the bequest of Jesus to get a young colt. Jesus had not been in the temple sniffing incense. He was in his right mind being the master communicator intentionally sending two of them on a quest to get that young donkey, that young colt for the Old Testament significance, which we will see in just a moment. You cannot come to the conclusion that Jesus was just an upright, good moral teacher because of circumstances like this, because of settings like this. The Pharisees recognize that if you're a good moral teacher, if you're a good rabbi, you won't let these guys do what they're doing. You won't let them say what they're saying. You've got to step in as the parent of the children and you've got to rebuke them. Why don't you say something? Why don't you do something? Rabbi, teacher, come on, this is getting out of control. What do you believe about Jesus? You believe Jesus is just a a good moral teacher? You can't believe it based on just this passage alone. What do you think? Jesus is lying? Well, if Jesus is lying, then how do you explain away his miracles, his miraculous signs and wonders? We read it here for yourself, that they were praising God because of all the miraculous works that he had been doing. It's chapter 19 of Luke. By this time, Jesus has a solid reputation of immediately healing people, immediately performing a miraculous sign and wonder. And then by the time it gets to the resurrection, The pièce de résistance, excuse my poor French accent, the culmination, the capstone of all of Jesus' miraculous signs and wonders is done by the Father who comes in with his definitive statement. What does it mean that Jesus did all these miracles? What does it mean that Jesus said all these amazing teachings? I'm going to raise him from the dead as my seal of approval on his life, on his teachings, on his works, is identity the resurrection the statement by god the father that everything that jesus said was right everything that jesus did was right because of who jesus is the reason why jesus performed the miracles he performed the reason why jesus said the things he said attributing so many old testament passages of scripture to himself allowing other people to attribute Old Testament passages of Scripture to himself, as we'll see in just a moment as well, is because it was true, because of who he was, because of who he is. And we have the Father stepping in and saying, he's not a loony tune, he's not a liar, he really is Lord. So you're one of these two types of people, you either get excited about Jesus because you believe he's Lord, or you get agitated about Jesus because you find other people making him Lord. And the Pharisees understood very clearly what Jesus understood very clearly. They get it. They connect the dots in seeing what Jesus is doing, and hearing what the disciples are saying, the uproar of the crowd and what they are concluding about Jesus and his identity, and they don't like it. Rebuke these disciples of yours. And here, Jesus is thrown a big meatball. Anybody hungry today? Can we talk more about that meatball, how big it is, how impossible it is to, to miss this huge meatball This softball that's thrown in front of him, when you want somebody to hit it out of the park, you lob them that ball. You throw it so that it's right in their sweet spot. Unmistakable. You can't miss this. It's right there. Here it is. Swing at that baby. Hit it out of the park. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. Rebuke your disciples riding in on a young donkey. Hey, it's Old Testament 101. See, this is what Luke is assuming from his audience. He assumes it from you and from me. He's assuming that we've been reading our Bibles. He's assuming that his audience has been studying the scriptures that point to him. And so Luke isn't in his gospel, Matthew does it in his, but Luke isn't in this particular passage of Scripture bringing us to the Old Testament passages of Scripture where this behavior would have been recognized by any Jew worth their salt, by any Pharisee, any student of the Old Testament. You would have known, hey, Judaism 101, Kings rode into town on horses and donkeys. That's what they did. Now, we say today it's not common here in York, Pennsylvania or other parts of the United States to have a major means of transportation to be a donkey or a horse, right? At least for long trips. We use cars, we use buses, sometimes we use trains. Of course, we use planes and jets and things of that sort. But back in the day, a horse and a donkey was a common means of traveling, and a king would often ride on a donkey, do battle on a donkey. And so the Pharisees are looking at this situation and seeing the Emotional response, the deliberate, intentional response of the disciples. And there it's asking Jesus, would you please intervene? Because this has now gone a bit too far. This whole thing about people taking off their outer garments, their cloaks, and throwing them on the road in front of Jesus. When was the last time you took a valuable outer garment, your coat, your jacket, and put it in harm's way for a jackass to walk on? You don't have to know very much about farming at all to know that donkeys tend to get a little bit of something-something on their hooves from time to time, a little bit of donkey manure on their hooves, and you're going to take what's valuable to you, and you're going to take off what's valuable to you, and you're going to put it on the ground, and you're going to let a donkey walk over your outer garment and soil it, and get it dirty, and on top of that, perhaps have rips and holes put in this. You just made a choice as a disciple to take a hit in your pocketbook, to take a hit in your purse. What you decided to do as an act of worship, as an act of ascribing worth, is going to hit you where it hurts. Because now when all is said and done and the crowd goes away, you're going to have to try to find that cloak, try to find that garment, sew it up, clean it up, and it might be irreparable. You might end up looking like the laughing stock in town, trying to wear that thing in public anymore. And that's what these people are doing. Putting down what's valuable to them. See, this is what a disciple does. A disciple does take a financial hit. That's what it means to give worth and worship to God. Until your, your worship hits you in the pocketbook, you're not really worshiping God. We're not really giving to God what he deserves. That's discipleship 101. It's not about preserving our lives. It's not about protecting what God gives us. It's about giving God what is due and what he deserves. And so there's no price for a disciple. See, anybody who is a disciple has something of worth, something of value, something selfless, something sacrificial to give that you might not get back. You know, when you give to God, when I give to God, when we worship God, we never get things back the same way as when we gave them to God. And there is this, by now, understanding about Jesus. Do you see this? There's this understanding about Jesus that some have, the disciples, that leads them to do something extravagant. Jesus, not out of his mind, he's been deliberate. I want you to do something that will be unmistakable to anybody who knows the Old Testament. I want you to go find a young colt that nobody's ever ridden on, and I'm gonna ride in on that colt. And I know full well that people will take their outer garments off and put them down on the road in front of me, and they're going to proclaim some of the Old Testament scriptures about me. I'm not out of my mind. I'm not lying to you. I'm not a lunatic. I'm not a liar. I am Lord. In fact, it was so clear, it was so obvious, so unmistakable to the people of that day that the Pharisees are recorded as saying, who knows what else they were saying, grumbling and complaining and being agitated under their breath. But this is enough. This is all we need. Makes it into the record of Scripture. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So you've got to make a decision about Jesus. And I've got to make a decision about Jesus. And then every single decision you make about Jesus thereafter is directly impacted. There's no such thing as a decision for Jesus that doesn't lead to a lifestyle and a lifetime Of more decisions based on that decision. Yes, you make an initial decision for Jesus. You believe that He's Lord. But then every single decision that you make after that goes back to that initial decision about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. See, your life and mine is a series of decisions based on a decision. For better or worse, Pharisees, same thing. They had made a decision about Jesus, come to the wrong conclusion about Jesus, and so every other decision that they make is based on a faulty conclusion about Jesus. That's why that decision that you make for Jesus Christ, whether he's a liar or whether he's a lunatic or whether he's Lord, is the most important decision of your whole life. Because I don't know if you realize it or not. For better or worse... Every single decision you make in life points back to that ultimate, primary, significant, diamond, gem of a decision. What have you decided about the identity of Jesus Christ? You know, it's possible for somebody to believe that Jesus is a liar and to live the same type of a life as somebody who believes that Jesus is a lunatic, and to live the same type of a life as somebody who believes that Jesus is Lord. How is that possible? Well, if you don't really understand what lordship is about, you'll act like a lunatic. Your other decisions will be just like the decisions that people make who come to faulty conclusions about Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're a young person. It doesn't matter if you're an old person. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor. It doesn't matter if you have a job where you don't get to have any type of public involvement with people, interpersonal involvement with people at all. But the truth of the matter is, this decision about the identity of Jesus Christ, If you are a disciple, that decision must, by nature of that decision, affect every other decision you will ever make. It affects what type of a job you're going to have. It affects how you conduct yourself when you're at that job. It affects what you do with God's money and what you don't do with God's money. It affects whether or not you take, and I take seriously, the ministry of reconciliation, saying you're sorry when you need to apologizing when you should. See, this is where it gets incredibly uncomfortable as lead pastor of a church. James says in James chapter three, not many of you should be teachers because those who teach will be judged more harshly. This is where it gets uncomfortable if you're an elder in a church or a deacon in a church or you're some type of a Sunday school teacher or you're involved in a men's Bible study or you're involved in a woman's Bible study where some way or another the Word of God is heard or taught and you're involved. The Lordship of Jesus Christ must If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you profess that Jesus is your savior, Jesus is your Lord, you cannot live in the same way as those who believe he's a lunatic or those who believe he's a liar. You can't live that same way. But if you lose sight of the lordship of Jesus, I can guarantee you'll make some of the same decisions as people who don't believe Jesus is Lord. See, at the end of the day, at the end of your life, at the end of mine, it will come down to on your deathbed, on my deathbed, all of life will come down to what you've decided about Jesus Christ. Who is he? And then every other decision you've made in life, every other decision You'll make in life. You might be in the midst of making a decision right now. If you're a disciple, that decision must be based upon the first and foremost decision. The identity of Jesus Christ. When they lob before Jesus, that's softball. Rebuke your disciples. Notice Jesus doesn't, he doesn't blink. He doesn't flinch look what he says. I tell you, if these were silent, if the disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. Here we have the Pharisees who are hard of heart. They have eyes to see and ears to hear. They've been studying the Old Testament for all of their life. You can be a pastor and know the scriptures. You can be an elder and know the scriptures, a deacon, Know the scriptures to Sunday school teacher. Know the scriptures, be involved in some type of a ministry, know the scriptures, be a homeschool parent, know the scriptures, and with the passage of time, I know because I have to struggle with this day in and day out. With the passage of time, you can subtly listen to this, be concerned and consumed with making sure other people are following Jesus as Lord while you yourself are starting to act like he was a liar and he was a lunatic. This is why we don't trust God with areas of our life that really reflect he is Lord. Has God lied to you lately? Has God shown you that My promise is ridiculous. You cannot base your life on the promises found in my word, the Bible. No, he hasn't done that. And so why is it whatever we're facing in the course of our lives, why would we want to go another moment? As if the decision that you're now facing, the decision that you're going to face in the future should be or could be based on anything other than Jesus is Lord. It's these guys who had eyes to see and ears to hear, who studied the scriptures, who don't see. And Jesus says, I tell you, if the disciples weren't doing this, the stones, that last time you checked, they don't have eyes. They don't have ears. They don't have a mouth. They don't have a tongue. They're inanimate objects never were alive in the first place. And Jesus says, what they are saying is so true that even the stones, if people were not willing to acknowledge who I am, the stones would acknowledge who I am. And what Jesus does is he hits that softball out of the park. He takes that meatball that's served up to him, warm and steamy. And he says, you know what? I concur with their conclusion. After all, it was my idea to send them to get that young donkey in the first place, and I do know the scriptures quite well. After all, I did know that they were going to reach this conclusion as my disciples, and I wholeheartedly endorse what they're saying. If Jesus was a good moral teacher and the disciples were coming to a wrong conclusion about him. You understand where this is going? A good moral teacher would have had no other response but to correct stinking thinking. He would have had to step in in order to maintain his status as a good moral teacher. He would have had a moral and a spiritual, a theological Responsibility to step in and say no, 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 no. You, you hold it. Pharisees are right on this one. Now they've been wrong before, fellas, but they're right on this one. You've taken it a little bit too. Pick up the cloaks. Come on now, pick up. I'm sorry. What was I thinking about uh, sending you on this journey in the first place? We don't see Jesus doing that. Jesus rubs salt and the Pharisees wounds says you know what you who have hard heart what the disciples are doing is what you should be doing recognizing your king recognizing your messiah how is it that you can study the scriptures so much and miss what should be obvious miss zechariah chapter 9. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9, and you'll see for yourself the genius way in which Jesus was intentionally, purposefully communicating to say the right word, to perform the right act at the right time, to have the right and maximized impact, so that if you were looking for the king of Israel if you are looking for the one about whom all the scriptures are written it would be unmistakable in Zechariah chapter 9 beginning in verse 9 rejoice greatly o daughter of zion shout aloud o daughter of jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey wow I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a promise in the Old Testament in Zechariah, written 600 to 650 years before their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. This is why we say, you can't make this stuff up. The Bible is such a book that man wouldn't write if he could, couldn't write if he would. 66 books written by dozens of authors over hundreds of years. There is no other quote-unquote holy book by any of the world's other religions that even comes close to the way that the Bible was written. Most of the authors did not even know each other. At the time that they wrote their book, most of the authors did not even live at the same time when they wrote the words that became Scripture. And here we have Jesus either being out of his mind or right on point. Knowing that the Pharisees, knowing that anybody who's familiar with the Old Testament, a disciple, familiar with the Bible would be able to connect the dots. This is why Luke doesn't specifically reference where this was fulfilled, but Matthew does it in Matthew chapter 21. He says this was to fulfill Zechariah 9 and verse 9. You can read that for yourself in Matthew chapter 21. Luke is assuming that we are reading our Bibles. Luke is assuming that his audience is familiar enough with the Old Testament to be able to connect the dots, and he is helping us understand that Jesus wasn't out of his mind at all. He was totally in his right mind, doing the right thing at the right time to have maximum impact so that the people, no matter whether they were a Pharisee or a disciple, would connect the dots and understand the diamond of this passage, understand the reason why this passage is here in scripture, because God wants you and he wants me to understand with absolute clarity that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus is the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament. The idea that's presented in Zechariah chapter 9 is the idea of a peaceful kingdom. Have you noticed that despite all of the attempts for peace in the Middle East up to this point, and after this point until the second coming of the King of Kings, every one of the attempts at a lasting peace in the Middle East have fallen short. The kind of the kingdom that Jesus is offering, the kind of the kingdom that's coming, is a kingdom that's characterized by peace. Humble and lowly, riding on a donkey. The people are recognizing the kingship, the identity of Jesus as they put down their cloaks. The disciples are getting it. The Pharisees are understanding, hey, what's going on here? I don't like that. And then the disciples do something off of their lips and out of their hearts. They begin to make a proclamation that must have really gotten under the skin of the Pharisees. Did you catch this in Luke chapter 19, verse 38, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, where does that come from? It comes from the Psalms. Psalm 118, look with me at Psalm 118 in verse 19. Look at the context of, the particular verse that Luke records in scripture, they might have been saying other things that were messianic, other things from the Old Testament that they were attributing to Jesus. But the one gem, the one diamond in particular, here's the context in Psalm 118, beginning in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Exactly what the disciples were doing. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Here it is. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Luke records that they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. That's the context of what the disciples were declaring as they were recognizing their king riding in on the back of a young donkey. And while the Pharisees are the ones getting all bent out of shape, getting all discombobulated over the behavior and the words of the disciples, Jesus doesn't even flinch. He says, you know what? They're absolutely right. And you do well to make the same decision. And then after that decision, base every single decision of your life upon that decision. Yes, you are facing decisions. In your life today, you will face decisions. Tomorrow, you'll face financial decisions, relational decisions, career decisions, reconciliation decisions. You will face decision after decision, after decision, after decision, after decision, after decision decision in your life and in your family. The question is, upon what decision are you making those decisions? Is it on the Lordship of Jesus Christ, or is it as the Pharisees had drawn their conclusion, which was quite different? First and foremost, most important thing you need to do in your life is come to a right decision about the identity of Jesus Christ. And thereafter, every single decision you make will be based upon that one solitary decision.
0: Been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit Couragematters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on Couragematters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.